Well, welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C, Walker. Yes, that's right. It's me, and we are listening to bumper music by a gentleman by the name of Jason Shaw, who I will introduce to you at the end of the show. But now, it's time to introduce my guest who's on the phone with me right now. Many people know him as the Frederick Folklorist through the Fame Organization because he writes monthly articles in the Soundpost, which is the monthly newsletter. Other people know him as a music producer of really good shows. Some other people know him giving workshops on music. And some just know him because he's an all-around good guy. I happen to have Tom Colehap on the line. Tom, how are you, sir? Todd Walker, how the heck you doing, my friend? I am well. Let's have the crowd give you a round of applause. <laughs> how about that? That was so sweet. Thank you very much. <laughs> so this is going to be fun. I'm going to learn a little bit more about you, the things I don't know. And the people listening who don't know you at all are going to find out how cool of a guy you are. Well, you're going to be, uh, you got your work cut out for you to make me a really cool guy, but let's go for it. This would be fun. Well, for those of you listening who don't know who Tom is, Tom is actually not a musician per se. He's a connoisseur of listening. And I think that's probably an apropos term, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, I, you may not know this, but I'm probably your only guest that's actually listened to every single one of your pod shows. Have you really? Your podcast. Oh yeah. I started from day one when it was the COVID and we had nothing else to do. So I thought it was a great idea you had. Listen to all of them. And I continue to listen to all of them. And uh, I am the only person, in fact, that's why you had problem finding intro music. I'm the only guest you had who has never picked up a guitar and is not a musician. Well, as I tell people who come up after a show and they say, gosh, you know, we don't do any music. And I said, you know, the most important person in a live performance is the, is the audience. The, the, yeah. people, the people who listen, because without the audience, those of us who perform, we might as well just stay home and play on the couch. Well, I, I did have a brush with greatness of playing the guitar. It was during the winter at uh, one of the um, open mics at the uh, coffee company, and a guy asked me to hold his guitar while he was putting his coat on. So that's about <laughs> as that's as close as I ever got to actually playing. I looked, oh my god, this is a guitar! It's so cool. And then I had to give it back to him. But uh, that was my brush. Okay. Now, you moved to Frederick, gosh, what is it, about eight years ago, I guess? No, it's actually been uh, closer to 11, uh, 11 years ago now. And let me ask you. Yes. Uh, I'll put you on the spot. Do you remember the first time we ever met? Ooh. It would have been a Sunday Songwriter Songfest, I think. No. Uh, actually, I met you before I ever knew you were associated with the music. Really? Uh, I was, yeah, yeah. That house next to uh, where I work at was for rent. Oh, that's right. To- that's right. Yeah. You showed me that house, and then like a week later, I'm at the coffee company in open mic. I said, oh, my God, that's the real order that showed me the house. You're at, I so had, I met you before I ever knew you were with music. I had totally forgotten about that. You were absolutely right. Well, thank you for yeah. having a better memory than I do. <laughs> that's all right. So now you're, you grew up somewhere in the Baltimore area, I think, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, uh, born, born and raised around Catonsville, around the Baltimore area. and went to high school in uh, Baltimore, Mount St. Joe. And uh, joined the Navy shortly after that. I was in the Navy for six years. I actually was a dental technician because I had my heart set on being a dentist. And um, realized, you know, I like to talk to people way too much to be a dentist when you've all your fingers in their mouth and you can't talk. (laughs) 
So I said, well, let me find something else to do. So, um, you know, long story short, I actually got into coaching, uh, track and field coaching uh, in Baltimore at Towson State and then went on to Brown University and Syracuse University for quite a long time and uh, had uh, really good luck there and uh, had some great athletes to work with. Uh, uh, Some went to the Olympic trials and uh, one actually broke the American record and the men's javelin. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, careers take you different paths. And um, traveling all the time at Syracuse, and you know we 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 were all over the place, and recruiting was pretty extensive. But I uh, came back here to Maryland about, like I said, about eleven years ago. Um, enjoyed it ever since, and oh, probably eight nine years ago, joined Fame, and you know that's kind of how where our connection really is. And I really got into um, music and folk music, and um, just really lit a fire under me since then. Well, for those of the folks who are listening who don't know what FAME stands for, it stands for Frederick Acoustic Music Enterprise. It's a, it's now a kind of a regional organization, although it's it's uh, in, centered around Frederick, Maryland. But it is a, a wonderful organization, and Tom is very active in it. I think you are now in charge of memberships, I think, aren't you? Yes. I had to find that out. Yeah, probably about a month ago. <laughs> and I, I um, uh, Go ahead. I was just going to say I received your, your questionnaire yesterday. Oh, you did. Very good. Well, hopefully some people who are listening also got the questionnaire. Yeah, so I am about a month ago uh, taken over from uh, Sam was doing – Sam Ott is our uh, president. He was doing an awful lot, had a lot of uh, – he was just in a lot of places at the same time. So I offered to take over the membership role. And uh, one of the things we want to reach out to FAME members is to see – you know, if fame is still doing what they wanted us to do when they first joined, we've been around for over a decade now. But, you know, as organiz- as people change and their needs change, maybe the organization needs to move with the time. So we're just trying to keep uh, tabs of what people are looking for in fame and make sure we're kind of checking all their boxes. So, yeah, I've taken over the membership for fame. Well, thank you for doing that. Now, I want to go yeah. back to this dental assistant thing. Oh, Lord. Okay. <laughs> How did you get interested in dental work? You know, I, that's an excellent question. I, I don't remember uh, why. Well, I take that back. Um, I, uh, I realized that someone had mentioned to me, one of the recruiters or whatever, that the medical dental field was a good field to get into because they didn't have to stand inspections. They could wear their hair longer, and people pretty much leave you alone. Uh, because they know that, you know, you were able to help them uh, in their time of need or if they were in pain. So I kept that in the back of my mind. And um, it was just a really good field to get into, and I worked with really nice people. And the other thing was, here's something pretty strange. I was in the Navy for six years, never stationed on a ship, and I can't swim a lick. How do you like that? <laughs> so where were you stationed? I was, uh, well, I, I did my boot camp at Great Lakes. And um, went from there to Edsel, Scotland. Really? In Scotland for yeah, lived in Scotland for two years, uh, and that's kind of when I really got involved with a lot of European folk music. Uh, there were a lot of good folk music groups back then. Uh, my big thing is history. I absolutely love history, and folk music is talks so much about you know oral history that's now put to music, and. Um, got familiar with a lot of local uh, musicians over there and really started to get into it. So I was in Scotland for two years and then South Mississippi, uh, Pascagoula, Mississippi, uh, for two years. As a matter of fact, I might have the distinction of the only person you've known 
that the eye of a hurricane on two separate occasions have passed right over my head. <laughs> so I was in the center of Hurricane Frederick when I was in Pascagoula, Mississippi in 78 or 79. And I was in the center of the eye of the hurricane or Hurricane Bob up in Rhode Island when I was coaching at Brown University. So that's kind of weird when I really think about it. But anyway, so I've been in the center of two hurricanes, literally. So how did you transition from dental to coaching were you were you a sports guy in in school as a kid yeah i i, I threw shot put in discus uh when i was in high school always loved the sport we didn't really have a coach uh so if you were going to learn anything you had to learn it on your, by yourself and it was before videos and all that stuff so i uh, watched guys who were obviously better than i was which is pretty much anybody and uh, kind of picked their brain and read books and those kind of things and kind of was self-taught at that point and then uh, later, when I got out of the Navy, um, the local high school there was looking for somebody to work with the throwers, and they asked me to do it. And they paid me $300, which I thought was $299 too much, because I was having such a good time. Um, and I really got into it. And as you know, with me, once I kind of get into something, I go in full bore. So I really learned everything I could about it and got to be fairly good. And then uh, Towson State University hired me, and then a coach uh, at Brown University that heard about me and asked me to go apply and just kind of started working my way up the rung at that point. Now, isn't it somewhat unusual to get into college coaching without having a degree in, like, physical education or something like that? Uh, it is, and usually when you start in the lower rungs, it may be a part-time basis. Uh, but, yeah, as you get uh, farther up, you know, you kind of have to get vetted more or less. Um, and of course, you know, at a job like Syracuse, where there's, you know, lots of people that are applying to, you know, very, they were big time, big 10 back then. I mean, we had, uh, you know, Donovan McNabb and Marvin Harrison, if you remember football players, and, mm-hmm. um, we were one of the few schools that had a top, uh, top 20 football team and top 20 basketball team at the same time. So it was, there was a lot going on in the athletic department, but, um, and just like it is in a lot of jobs, it's who, you know, that counts. So. Once you start to get to know some of the coaches, they remember you when they're head coaches and they kind of reach back to grab people to bring them up who they trusted and they know would do a good job for them. So, you know, that was kind of my pathway to coaching at that level. So was it always track and field? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've already wrestled in high school as well. Um, track and field was really something I enjoyed. Uh, it was more a singular sport. Yes. Um, you know, you, you can't pass the ball if you're not doing well, you're kind of out there all by yourself and didn't get a lot of notoriety, but, um, I, I enjoyed it. And one of those things that kind of clicked as a kid. So I enjoyed coaching and I, I worked with a lot of good people and athletes. So I really had a good career in coaching. Now, what was the event that you enjoyed coaching the most? Well, um, it wound up being an event that I had never done in my whole life. It was the men's hammer throw. And the hammer is basically the ball and chain where you see people twirl around in the seven-foot circle and let it go. Um, there's a lot of body control. And, and the bigger athlete is not necessarily the, the best athlete in that event. Probably wouldn't say that if it was shot put. Size is definitely uh, an advantage there. But, um, you know, the world record holder in the men's hammer is, uh, you know, 5 feet 10, 185 pounds. So, you know, an event like that where I really had to learn and I went to clinics with Russians 
Um, and they're the best hammer throwers in the world. And um, I don't know, just, again, something really clicked where the small guy can really have an advantage in the hammer when you don't think he would in all the throwing events. So um, anyway, I had a good time. I had a lot of success and, and then kind of moved on from there. Now, is the success for a smaller guy because of increased agility, not having to move as much weight around? Well, the other thing is it's a very small, it's a seven-foot circle. So if you try to spin around in a seven-foot circle when you're six, eight, 300 pounds, the circle kind of gets gobbled up pretty quickly and you yeah. run out of room. So when you're a smaller guy, a little more agile, a little less bulk, it's easier to uh, you have a little bit more room in the circle to do what you're trying to do. Uh, but again, in the shot put, when it's a little more linear or a little, uh, a little more bulk involved, um, you know, that's an advantage. But in the, in the javelin and the hammer, not unusual to see guys who are 5'10", 180 pounds that are, you know, world-class athletes. Now, you mentioned that you had several athletes move on to either Olympics or national championship. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, at one time, one year, uh, the NCAs were at uh, Eugene, Oregon. And I had this when I was at uh, Syracuse, actually. I had more throwers qualify for that than any other uh, school in the country. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And, you know, I've had several different athletes at the U.S. Olympic trials. Not easy to get there because you have to qualify first. Not everybody can go. And then I was uh, lucky enough to have uh, one athlete who I worked with who uh, was a two-time Olympian and wound up breaking the men's record in the in the javelin. So um, so that was a lot of fun. It's very exciting. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. And you look back now, it's almost like seems like, you know, a lifetime ago. Um, now that I'm involved in so many things that have nothing to do with coaching, but it's just the way that life kind of works out at some point. Yeah. Now, at the time when you got out of it, did it was it difficult to transition out of it, or was it just that's the way the cookie crumbles? And oh well. Well, you're never going to make much money as a coach. Uh, I never wanted to be a head coach because it takes me off of the field where I get a chance to work one on one with the athletes. Uh, so I never wanted to be a head coach, and they're the only people that can make decent money. But as an assistant coach, particularly throwing, because they're, if it was a sprint coach, that's a little more uh, glamour sport, sprint hurdles. Um, even if you watch the Olympics on TV, very seldom will you see any throwers. Um, although actually, and very until very recently, we won more medals in the throwing events than, than sprints or hurdles or anything else. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just always enjoyed it. And... Um, I, I, maybe I just like the fact that you were by yourself and able to do your thing. And I've kind of been somebody who didn't have a problem being by myself where it comes to reading or uh, learning things. I didn't need a big group to be able to do those things. And track and field kind of was a, was a team event, but you didn't need five people to be able to play ball, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, you said when you were in Scotland, you you got to know a lot of the, the local regional music there and a lot of the musicians, but had you been into music as a kid? Um, no. Um, in fact, until I was at Syracuse, I had never been to a concert in my entire life. When I was there, uh, Bruce Springsteen was touring. I uh, was doing his, uh, Tom Joad tour and he only wanted the book small venues, like a thousand seats and under. And he came to a small theater that was in Syracuse and I had a chance, the university got really good tickets, and you had a lot of benefits. 
with a school like Syracuse. So I was able to go and listen to uh, a nice Bruce, Bruce Springsteen small intimate concert. But until then, I had never been to a concert in my life. Um, I did always like, it's kind of funny, I did like folky type music even when I was like 8, 9, 10 years old, I remember, um, which was not the norm with my friends. So uh, I don't know why those things just kind of click, maybe because of the words and the stories. And I tend to be more of a, um, uh, I just like good stories and, and a lot of words and stories and imagery and history. And that was kind of my thing. So that's kind of how folk music kind of just lit the fire with me. Now, did you get to know folk music through your parents or just when it would occasionally show up on a radio? Um, probably occasionally show up on a radio. Um, I really wasn't attuned at that point to like the, uh, sixties, uh, Marshall Washington kind of stuff, uh, where you did see, you know, Pete Seeger and Peter Paul Mary at the monument down there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really, that was a little bit before my time uh, when I was born in 58. So, you know, um, I don't know, you know, it's probably just the history. I love history. I always like reading backstories about things. And to hear a song like um, Palm Dooley or, uh, you know, those kind of songs where I realize that they're actually based on true people and true stories and learn more about those. I mean, that just really interests me. So when more did... More than the doo-wop kind of stuff. Sure. Now, when did the kind of the folk slash acoustic music bug really grab a hold of you? Well, I was in college. I went to Rutgers. Uh, when I got out of the Navy, I was fortunate to have the GI Bill the old version, which basically really helped you out quite a bit with school. So I went to Rutgers, and uh, one of my classes was Intro to Folk Music, um, taught by uh, Lomax, who was uh, one of the pretty, yeah, John Lomax. Uh, Sorry, Alan Lomax. John was the father. Uh, Alan Lomax. So he was one of my professors there at Rutgers talking about folk music. And, of course, he knew everybody who was anybody and was instrumental in a lot of things. Uh, so I had a chance to meet him, talk to him, and we talked more about folk music. And, you know, he, he mentioned people who I'd never heard of before that I started listening to back then. Um, so that was not that I got extremely close to him, but he did kind of open up my horizons a little bit uh, with folk music and turn me on to people who I'd never heard of. That then it's kind of like the rabbit hole, then turn you on to other people, and then you listen to somebody, and they say, oh, you should like listen to this person. So, um, yeah, so... Alan Lomax was kind of started that as a serious endeavor of me really getting closer to folk music. Now, did Tom Colehep have a, a pretty good album library? Um, well, I had a good library card. So <laughs> uh, at the time, I, I don't I don't know what they do now. There were these huge, I don't know what they were bins, I guess you might call them, of how al- al- you know records and albums. And uh, you could check out the album just like you would a book and bring it home. And, of course, you know, they have all the liner notes in there and great, great stories and great stuff in the liner notes. So I would check out, you know, album after. I mean, I think you could get like three at a time or something and uh, bring those home and, you know, listen to everything under the sun that I could and really learned more about it. And it was free. It was the library. You know, I love that stuff. So, yeah, the library helped me out quite a bit from maybe when I was – uh, you know, 12 to like 16 or 17, I got a lot of those uh, folk music albums out of the library for free. Now, you said that um, Bruce Springsteen was the first concert you'd ever seen in person. 
did yeah. it did it grow exponentially after that, or was it just kind of a happenstance every once in a while, and eventually uh, always... it, it it grew a little bit, but um, I tell you, um, there were little small coffee shops uh, in the Syracuse area, and that well, that county kind of thing. So I started to go to some of the little local shops, and they would have you know local folk musicians come in. Not so much the big thing, although they did have one or two uh, fairly famous guys. Uh, that came in, but um, yeah, it was really the kind of like the Frederick Coffee Company, maybe a little bit upgrade from that because coming through New York, they would kind of browse around a little bit in the county. We weren't too far from some of the major cities, uh, so yeah, some of the little coffee companies in uh, the Syracuse area listen to folk music, and I like listening rooms. Uh, Albert Grossman, who was probably the all-time greatest manager of music in the 60s and 70s. He started the first listening room in Chicago at the Gator Horn um, Coffee. Well, it was just a folk music shop there. Uh, it was called the Gator Horn in Chicago. And that was it. It was a listening room, just like, well, very similar to Brewers uh, Alley when you guys were doing it upstairs there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Albert Grossman really thought it was important to bring musicians in who weren't a bar, there wasn't a bar scene or anything like that where people can just focus on their music and their their words. So I like, I kind of gravitate towards places uh, where you don't have the bar music or the TVs or the guys yelling in the background, but are nice, quiet listening places for the folk music. Because I'm all about the lyrics and the words. I love people, uh, Dan Kenny comes to mind, local people who are very uh, artistic with their words that they use. They paint nice imagery. Uh, they have play on words at times. So I really enjoyed that and people who can tell a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I tend to stay to the smaller venues where I'm able to hear those people as opposed to the large concerts or stadium concerts. Now, when you moved back to Maryland, did you search out the coffee houses and things like that? I did. And that's how I found you. Yeah. I said to myself, when I moved to, when I moved here to, um, to the area, I said, well, you know, where am I going to find folk music? Well, you find folk music at coffee houses. Um, and I actually wrote an article that we can talk about. The articles I write I wrote an article about why the connection of folk music with coffee houses. But so, yeah, I went there and um, not knowing what to expect. I knew it was an open mic. That's all I knew. And of course, there you were. And we talked a little bit. But and then I kind of ventured out and I probably go to more open mics than anybody I know. Uh, in different counties. Um, I'm in T Wall in Baltimore Monday nights, well, before the COVID. Um, regular down at Music Cafe in Damascus on Thursday nights. Uh, usually back again there on Saturday afternoon for another open mic. Of course, the ones, you know, Tommy Wright would run at, um, at Beans. And I'm just, you know, all over the place at open mics, just listening to new talent. And it excites, and I know you were excited too when you get a chance to hear people that maybe for the first time or people that are just trying out new stuff or somebody like Josh Gray, who sits back in the audience, who writes and listens and learns and gets enough courage to get up and play for the first time. And now he's in Nashville, you know, doing big stuff. So that's a lot of fun. It is. And, uh, and I also like the, to see the people grow in their, their craft. Yeah. Uh, because generally at open mic, well, I shouldn't say generally, but many of the performers in open mics, that's their first chance of performing live. And mm-hmm. it, it can be very nerve-wracking. You'll hear most of the performers who I have on the show say that. 
And But you start getting used to it. Um, it's a wonderful way to bring out new songs if you're a songwriter or to try new stuff. And it's wonderful when people sit and listen like yourself. Um, because Yeah, you've mentioned before that for a lot of those people, that's the largest presentation of their songs they're ever going to have. They're never going to sing on the stage or book a gig or those kind of things. They just like coming out and doing their, their, you know, their soccer moms or whatever, doing their thing and everybody claps and everybody has a good time. And that's the largest stage that they're going to perform on, you know? Mm -hmm. Now you also got into producing shows. How did you go about that? Out of frustration. Literally it was out of frustration. We were at a same board meeting. And we were talking about uh, the idea of doing um, a showcase-type performance and show, and no one could agree on who the talent was going to be or what the theme was going to be or where it was going to be. And you know how boards can be that, you know, month after month after month after month, we talk about it and nothing ever gets done. So I said, fine. I said, here's what I'm doing. I'm doing a show. It's going to call, be called 100 Years of Acoustic Music. And, you know, kind of off and running from there. I booked the venue. I did the whole thing. I got all the programs printed, um, booked all the talent, um, kind of a one-man show kind of thing. And uh, I put it together. And, you know, hour and a half before the show starts, I'm out on the corner, pounded in stakes. So, you know, have arrows as to where, where people can park and all that kind of stuff. And, and of course, you know, because you ran the sound and you were, well, helped running the sound and you helped me see it get set up. It was just a lot of fun, and and right after I did that show, the spark was it was a wasn't a spark it was a flame that said, "Oh my God, this is so much fun! I love doing it. I want to do more of it, and I want to do it on a bigger uh, stage, literally." Uh, but that was my first go round at pulling a show together, conceptually think about from A to Z what do I want it to be, how do I want it to be. And um, kind of took off and run at that point. So that that was the show that kind of got the ball rolling. Now, in that show, uh, for those of you folks listening who have not seen that show, Tom was he he played the role of the stage manager and stage <laughs> manager in the stage uh, on the, in the play Our Town, where in between scenes, the stage manager would come out and explain what's going to happen or what just happened, and that's what you did there. And how did you come up with that idea? I have no idea. I just thought, I don't want it to be boring. I don't want it to be another kind of show. So I said, what I'll do is, uh, and I had the uh, the show set up in not necessarily decades, but periods of music, covering maybe 15 to 20 years per period, more or less. And I had the artists who were kind of pretty good at that era uh, due, to, due to music. So I thought, why don't I do this? I'll, I'll come out in my bathrobe, and yeah, as you know, how it was set up, in my bathrobe, and a chair, and a light, and I'll sit like I'm reading the morning paper and talk about what you would have heard on the radio had you been in the 20s or things like that or read the paper, you know, during the 20s or 40s or 60s. And But what you didn't know, and I don't know if I told anybody, that on the inside of each page of the paper, I had a script that I had written and typed out because I couldn't remember all this stuff that I had uh, that I had on the piece of paper there. So I was reading that as I was going, you know, to talk about, oh, you know, this, you know, oh, I see where, you know, Babe Ruth hit another home run, you know, good for him, you know, those kind of things to let people think like this is what you would have 
experienced if you're in your kitchen in the 20s. And by the way, here's the music if you turn on the radio that you would have heard. Now, um, so that's kind of how the evening, evening progressed. Now, you were very comfortable or appeared to be. Um, it flowed very nicely. Had you been or ever done stage work prior to that? Not really. Um, when I was in high school, I was in a couple of plays, just, you know, no major roles, you know, little bit stuff here and there. I mean, that was fun. But um, what really did help me out was when I was in seventh and eighth grade, the Optimist Club in Baltimore sponsored a, a speaking contest. They would give you a topic. They would say you have to speak for five minutes, and then you got to write it, and you got to memorize it, and you have to present it in front of, you know, a group for the evening uh, at a dinner group, uh, and the judges were there. So, you know, that was my first time really speaking. Of course, most kids in the seventh eighth grade are terrified of really learning how to be in front of people, to speak in front of people, and not to be nervous, if possible. Uh, so that really helped a lot. That's kind of carried me through my whole life. So I found it very natural, very easy to do. Um, people tell me I did well. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I did, but uh, I found it a lot of fun. And that way, see, because I don't sing or perform per se, but it let me be a part of the show and on stage. And I felt like I was one of the guys kind of thing. Well, so, I, um, that was just a lot of fun. Yeah, I believe that public speaking is a performance. Mm -hmm. The And it's really doing what you've done organically. It's learning how to pace yourself, how to, you know, when to tell a joke or say something humorous, when to back off, all those things. So it is like being a performer. It just may not be music or, or, well, or hard I, acting I, or whatever. Yeah, and I put that to the test because uh, I will talk, I guess, maybe about the shows I've done or doing. But last year, I had Brooks Robinson, who, if people don't know, was a 16-time, you know, all-star third baseman for the Orioles, um, who's, you know, 80 years old, but such a, such a charming guy. And I brought him into the Weinberg and had over 900 people there, and I was the moderator for the evening. So it was he and I, only he and I on stage. I was uh, feeding him the questions and kind of keeping it going. So... You know, that was a lot of pressure because, you know, Brooks has been interviewed, you know, gazillion number of times. And you have 900 plus people who pay good money to come to this. And, and I was the guy who was going to be, you know, a master of ceremonies, more or less. But it was just Brooks and I on stage and just he and I were doing the talking. And so, yeah, that was I had a at that point kind of pull it together and say, OK, I have to be Mr. Sports Professional at this point and be as good as anybody else who has interviewed Brooks and, you know, do the best I can. Now, did you do lots of research for that show? Lots of research. I do lots of research for a lot of things. People don't know that, but I watched every interview he'd ever done that was on YouTube and read everything I could read about questions that people asked and answers that he gave. So a couple of times I knew the story behind the question was better than what he had just told me. So I kind of fed him a couple softballs to get the rest of the story out. Um, and he, he mentioned that to me afterwards. Uh, so, you know, those kind of things would only have been possible if I would have done as much research to know the background to a lot of these stories that, that he was telling. So, yeah, I did a lot of research, a lot of preparation, and um, I guess it paid off. Now, were you nervous going into it? Um, 
I'm nervous going into it. Uh, you're always, I, I, I can't speak for as a performer, but I imagine that you're always nervous, you know, 30 seconds before it's your time to walk out there. And as soon as you walk out, it's okay. Uh, I went over and over and over, not only my notes that I was going to ask him, but the introduction, because I wanted to have it uh, as, you know, I didn't want to read it and I want it to be as natural as possible, the introduction, you know, for Brooks. So I went over that, you know, time and time and time again. So I was probably as prepared as I as I could have been. I don't think I could have been any more prepared. Um, and the evening went exactly as I had ever hoped for. So I can't say I was nervous. Once my foot hit the stage, I was fine at that point. Now, when you did the uh, the first Maryland Folk Festival and Tom Paxton and his cohorts were on stage, and, uh-huh. and you were doing the, the MC and talking about Tom Paxton um, in your introduction, and those two guys came out. They performed first before the, Tom came out, and I seem to remember they said, gosh, this kid does his homework. <laughs> yeah, so here's the funny thing. Uh, a lot of people don't, and it's, fun, it's kind of fun we're doing this because there's a lot of stuff that has happened and went on that people had no idea that it went on. So, um we are uh, sitting, standing right backstage. Tom Paxson is right next to me, and uh, the he's getting ready to go on. And I said, "Okay, Tom, this is what we'll do. You know, I'll introduce uh, the Don Juans, and I'll introduce you, and I'm going to talk a little bit about you." And he goes, "No, no, don't do that." I said, "Well, what do you mean?" He goes, "Oh, don't say anything about me. I don't want anything. Don't say anything about me. Just because I was like, oh my god. I mean, people were coming here to hear Tom Paxson, I and you know, I kind of want to do that." So I said, well, how about if I tell him things that people don't know about you? He went, hmm. He said, okay, I guess you could do that. So I went out and talked about, like, where he, he he's known for wearing, like, a, a fisherman's hat kind of, you know, thing. Where he first got the hat, how long he's had it, who he was roommates with when he lived in New York. He was roommate with Wavy Gravy, if you remember Wavy Gravy from the Woodstock Festival. Um, so, I mean, just a lot of little facts that I knew again, from doing research that I was able to kind of reel off. So he was surprised. And of course the Don Juan's you're right. When they came out and said, wow, he, he really knew a lot about Tom and he was right on with everything. And he really did his homework. So, you know, those little things, even if you're going to use them or not, sometimes, uh, really come in handy. And that night, my knowledge about little tidbits that no one knew about Tom Paxton came in handy. Now, that show was which number in the progression of your productions? Um, well, I did one or two other small ones at um, the Performing Arts Factory there um, in Frederick, probably two other ones. So that was uh, one, two, probably my my fourth one. That was my fourth one. My first one was Frederick uh, Community College, mm-hmm. 100 Years of Acoustic Music. Then I did two small shows at uh, the Performing Arts Center, and then I did um, the Maryland Folk Festival at the Weinberg. So that would have been the number number four. That was uh, the fall of 2018, let me think. Yeah, 2018. Now, how did you go about choosing who you wanted as the headliner? Well, I wanted someone who, if you're in the folk music genre, you would have recognized the name. Uh, so Tom Paxton, particularly people in our generation, they certainly know the name. And honestly, it had to be somebody who was affordable. Uh, I had no idea what I was. I knew what my bills were going to be, but I didn't know what my revenue was going to be. Um, this was a pretty big venture. And, you know, the Weinberg is, you know, 
good size. I'm talking about over 1,100 seats and um, not cheap to rent. And the wine brewery takes 10% of ticket sales and yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, I need to be somebody who was um, going to bring somebody to say, hey, I know that guy. I know his songs. I want to hear them. But also not break the bank. So, um, and I've always liked Tom Paxton songs because, again, you go back to the lyrics. They're 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 a play on words. They have double meanings at times. Um, I just you know I've always liked his writing, so it it worked well. And he is a, at that time was 80 years old and decided that he is finished with uh, solo touring that he is now only going to perform with these two guys, uh, Don Juan, uh, Don and, and John, and who are very they're grammar, Grammy Award winners in their own right. And the three of them now tour nationwide together, and that's the only way Tom will uh, will tour at this point. So well, it, worked, it worked well. I mean, they, they did a great job, and I think the audience really enjoyed the evening. Oh, everyone did. Um, the Now, I, I think I remember you telling me that Tom was reluctant at first because of the size of the theater. Yeah, I tried to book him as a single solo act, and thank God he was smarter than I was and said that's not the right venue for him. Uh, he looks for around a 400-seat venue, more or less, as a as a max seat capacity. But he would play in an ensemble-type thing where he was the headliner of a folk festival where people were coming for other reasons. So, um, yeah, because the first time around, I tried to get him, and that didn't it didn't work. And uh, so I said, well, you know, let me let me bring him as the headliner of the folk folk festival. And again, so I'm looking around and I'm thinking, okay, what do I what am I going to call this thing? Frederick Folk Festival. Okay, that sounds cool. But I thought, well, doesn't Maryland Folk Festival sound cooler? And I wonder if there is a Maryland Folk Festival. So I looked everywhere. I checked and I called. Nope, there is no Maryland Folk Festival. So I said, okay, well, there is going to be one now. I'm calling it the Maryland Folk Festival. And um, that's kind of how that started. But, um, yeah, Tom did a great job, and he's just a he's just a really classy guy. So I was really happy that it worked out that way. Well, I was going to ask you, the he would be considered an icon in the folk music world. Mm-hmm. And very few of us, when I say us, the, the people on the street, get to meet heroes. We see them maybe in movies. We see them at concerts, read about them in magazines. Um, but we rarely get to meet them in person, and of course, we tend to build their persona sometimes larger than life. Were you surprised at all when you met him in person? Was he bigger than life? You know, how did you? Well, how did he, you? Yeah, I mean, when you see a guy in person like that, um, you know, you're always a little starstruck sometimes, but. You know, these guys do this every day, so, you know, they're used to this stuff. I, being as this was my first big show uh, with, you know, a, a person like Tom Paxson, I wanted to make sure I did things right. And I, I didn't know what was right and what was wrong because I had never tried something like this before at this level. So I tried to cover all my bases. So, you know, you, you get a rider, and a rider for people that don't know, when you book uh, an act are things that the uh, – that he or that the performer and their management are requesting sometimes requiring but oftentimes just requesting so you know i go through the rider carefully and make sure i have you know everything in place and all that stuff and i see in there for his meals it says you know tom paxton is a diabetic so please 
you know, if meals provided, you know, you need to keep that in mind and stuff. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice? Because um, I, you know, I had to book their rooms, uh, the the Don Juans and Tom. And I said, well, wouldn't it be nice if I have a little welcoming gift waiting for them back in their rooms? So you know, I bought uh, Don and John, you know, some stuff, and then I bought a nice little treat for uh, Tom Paxton. But I made sure it was you know sugar free and all of that stuff. So, you know, the next day when he comes into the show, you know, he says, oh, well, you know, uh, thanks for everything. And I said, well, did you get the treat I had in the refrigerator? He goes, uh, yeah. And I said, and I know that you're diabetic, so I tried to keep with that. And he goes, uh, I'm not diabetic. He <laughs> said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I had it in the rider. He goes, oh, don't worry about that stuff. He goes, I'm not diabetic. I can eat chocolate. I can eat whatever I want. Oh, really? So, Oh, my God. Oh, so a better story. Now, I'll finish that one in a minute. But was Judy Collins. Did I ever tell you about Judy Collins and the chicken breast? All right. So, no, I don't think so. All right. So I get the rider for Judy Collins. And, um, of course, I'm being very particular with this because this is a different level performer. So, you know, and she has a lot more requirements that I had to be careful of. So anyway, but a pleasant uh, lady to work with. So I go through the rider and I see dinner. She has a specific, very specific dinner request, and it has to be chicken breast with no coverings on it, just plain chicken breast, not like marinated or sauce or cheese or anything. So chicken breast. I said, okay. So I start with the local restaurants, you know, okay. I look at their menus online because there's no chicken breast. So I keep looking, 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 and I'm panicking. I'm like, oh, my God, it's like seven restaurants and nobody has chicken breast. So I go down to JoJo's, and I said, look, I said, you know, I got to talk to your chef. I need, a chi- I need chicken breast for dinner tomorrow night for Judy Collins. But we don't have it on. I know you don't have it on the menu, but I need it. Can we work something out? Well, okay, I'll talk to the chef, and it'll be a special thing, and we'll we'll have it. I said, great. So, you know, I I, I asked the other guys, uh, her her crew, who's there. Okay, what do you guys want to eat? We placed the order at JoJo's. I go down to get it, bring it back. It's great, you know, and everything. And I said, and and, and um, I said, you know, Mrs. Collins, I I know that you know you requested chicken breast. She goes, chicken breast? I don't like chicken breast. I said, well, it's in the rider. She goes, oh, I got to get them to change that. No, I don't. I, I stopped eating that like 20 years ago. I'm not doing chicken breast anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so what so, is. So here's the menu. So she ordered the, the hottest, spiciest Thai food you could imagine that she eats before she goes on stage and washes it down with coffee, uh, black coffee left and right and hot, spicy Thai chicken food. How do you like that? I would I would die. I know. That's exactly what she had to eat before she went on stage for the show. Because she appears to be so demure and, and <laughs> you know, it just, I would never have expected that. She's got to have her coffee before she goes on, and she has to have the spiciest Thai food that I could get. So that's what I got her. Well, you know, as long as you made her happy. Yeah. Oh, and actually, uh, I don't know if I'm getting So um, her manager, her, her uh Traveling manager, George, a uh, nice guy, you know, he comes in and he's kind of loaded for bear because that's his, uh, how he proceeds with the show. So he comes in and he wants to know, who's in charge? Who's doing this? You know, let's get that going. Let's get that going. I'm like, okay, this is going to be fun. So, you know, where's the soundboard and all that stuff? But who's the guy running this thing? Of course, that's me. I'm standing next to him. And um, he goes, well, okay, what are you going to do for this? What are you going to do for that? And I had answers for everything. So he said, okay. So, Gradually through the night, he realized, okay, this is a good show. We're really doing well, and we have 900-plus people in the audience. And at the end of the show, he's like my best bud. 
So we're sitting there chatting and talking and all kind of stuff. He's telling me about his vacation home. He goes, look, he goes, um, how long have you been doing this? I said, well, you know, I didn't want to say like, <laughs> like <laughs> a couple of weeks. No, I said, well, you know, I'm relatively new to all of this. And, you know, I have a other job and those things. He goes, well, look, you're doing a great job. And, you know, anytime you want to do a show, another show with Judy Collins, you let me know because you do a great job and we'll do it anytime at all. Wow. So I thought, oh, well, that, that's all I need to hear from, from this guy who came in and wanted, he was waiting to find, not fault, but he wanted to make sure that all of the boxes were checked off that should have been, and they were. So after that, he knew it was going to be a good show. Now, so, um, I, was, I was present for the Maryland Folk Festival, so I got to see the Don Juans and Tom's soundcheck. What was soundcheck like with Judy Collins? Well, everyone had to leave. Um, I was allowed, and they wanted to kick me out, but I was allowed to go in the very back where the soundboard was, if you're familiar with the Weinberg. Um, not bad at all. Um, uh, it was pretty quick. And um, really, her guys run the whole thing. So George, who was our manager, he takes over the soundboard. He runs sound for the whole show. Um, her pianist, Russell, he chooses this, which I thought was interesting. I don't know how other professionals do it. He chooses the songs that she's going to sing for the night, not Judy. Really? So, yeah. So he puts his list together. He goes over with her. Um, she has final approval, but he puts it together. In fact, he, it's funny. He called me aside down in the green room area. He said, Tommy said, let me ask you something. He said, I know Maryland here was kind of on the border during the civil war. And one of our songs can be a little touchy if you're from the South. Do you think that would be a problem? I said, no. I said, you know, I, this was actually, you know, a border state. Uh, you had some free, uh, you know, blacks. You had some slaves. Um, but I think, and I said, what's on? And he told me, no, I think it'll be okay. So he runs all of that. He, he puts all that together. He figures out the length of the show. And then he gives it to Judy what her set list is going to be. And so he puts it all together. Not she does. He puts it together. I think I lost it. Oh, there you, yep, I'm here. Okay. We had a little so dropout. I, I thought it was thought it was interesting that Russell puts everything together. You know, I would have thought the performer would do it, and maybe he would say, "Gosh, you know, we did that the last three nights. It didn't work really, really well. Let's mm -hmm. let's." Nick. So that's interesting, but she must trust him. She does. I mean, they've been together for 30, 30 years, I think. Oh, the the trust factor is huge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah same with same with George. So those three uh, travel together all the time. Now you so, had you had got you had put shows together that unfortunately had to be canceled, just like so many things had to have been canceled over the last four or five months. What were some of the shows that you had set up that had to be backed away from? Well, I was doing a show um, in Westminster, a very pretty little center there. If you ever been to the Cal County Arts Center on Main Street in Westminster? I had never been until uh, maybe two years ago. They brought in Peter Yarrow, which was a real stretch for them because they had never done anything like that. Uh, so I went to hear Peter Yarrow there and really fell in love with the venue. It's um, 265 seats, which is not large, but they re they have redone the entire place. It's orchestra, uh, it's um, what do they call them? Um, symphony type seating, I think they call it. Uh, it's one long row, but uh, they're nice. Plus, velvet seats, nice elevated stage, good sound system. 
And uh, so anyway, I was doing a show there with, it was called The Sounds of Summer. We were going to do it in June with Safe Harbor, Sam and Catherine Ott, and Michelle Swan. She was going to open for them. And we were only doing songs that kind of made you think about summer. So we were, you know, they were practicing. We had all the set list picked out. I had advertising done and posted and distributed and all that stuff. And then, you know, this was supposed to be in June. So, you know, in March, we're like keeping our fingers crossed. But then by like, you know, end of April, early May, we all can see the handwriting on the wall. So I had to cancel that show. Um, I had another show. I was bringing Brooks Robinson into Owens Mills, Maryland, which is actually where he lives, to do another show over there. So um, I had to wind up canceling that show. I was having, I brought in the uh, Frederick Symphony Orchestra to the Weinberg, uh, April, first Saturday of April. I had to postpone that show. I wound up having to postpone it twice. I went from April to October, thinking when I canceled, when I had to postpone it in March, that April, October would have been okay. Well, it's not. So then I pushed that back a whole nother year to next year. And then I was bringing in Tom Paxton and Judy Collins together to sing together at the Maryland Theater in Hagerstown, which is a little bit larger than the Weinberg seats, about 1,300 people. And um, I had done two shows last year there. One was I did Brooks Robinson again. I know it's a common theme, but I did Brooks there. And I also did a show with Rockabilly, and I brought in uh, Willie Berry and the Saperones. Mm -hmm. It was a good there show. At that, yeah, I mean, I, it was good. Um, of course, it's a huge theater to do a show like that. But um, I wanted to kind of get my feet wet with people who I knew uh, to see how it worked there at the venue. And honestly, wasn't blown over by uh, a lot of things there. Uh, so I decided that it would be good for me to move that show to the Weinberg. So I have moved Judy Collins and Tom Paxson to the Weinberg. It'll be the first Saturday of 2021. So the first Saturday of December 2021, so a little over a year from now. Uh, of course, that's not even on the website. It hasn't even really been formally announced, but it's not a problem we mentioning it now. Uh, but, yeah, that'll be um, first Saturday, December, Tom Paxton and Judy Collins together at the Weinberg in December of 2021. So those are the shows that, you know, I got affected by. And and now it's just it's a, it's a nightmare now because I'm trying to look at potential shows in the future. But it's so chaotic now. I have talked to several booking agents and everybody is trying to scramble to reschedule not only shows, that were booked this year, but people don't know there are a lot of shows on the books at venues that haven't been announced yet, uh, but contracts were signed and they have to honor those. So now they're trying to find dates that are going to fit those in as well as all the shows that got pushed back because, you know, they already had contracts in place for 2021 and, you know, all those dates are taken. Well, now the guys in 2020 who got canceled are trying to find dates in 2021 and all of those were already not all taken, but a lot of the good dates were taken by, you know, people who already signed contracts. So it's, it's a mess right now. I can't even, I'm just going to, the only two shows I'm doing next year are the symphony, uh, which is going to be first Saturday of, um, sorry, second Saturday of November, 2021. And then Tom and Judy, the first Saturday of December, 2021. Cause I mean, until the dust settles, no one knows what's going to happen. Um, even with talking, and I've talked to several big venue managers, uh, the guy that runs the Berkshire, Berkshire Michael down there, you know, I had a nice talk for about an hour 
about how all this is affecting him. He only has about mm, 500 seat venue, but he brings in, as you know, top notch people there. He does. And and the problem is overseas when you deal with visas and and those kinds of things, it gets tricky trying to set things up a year in advance. So he's dealing with some different issues. Um, you know, they're looking at you know uh, everything from 50 percent capacity to um, staggered. And what I know the Weinberg will do is not 50%, but staggered entrance times for uh, patrons into the theater so they're not all bunched together waiting at the door. Uh, try to minimize or have no intermission between shows. Again, trying to al- avoid large crowds. Um, ticketless entry where, you, you know, everything's downloaded on your phone to show. So, you know, people at the front desk aren't necessarily handing a lot of tickets back and forth. No printed programs. They'll just be online availability. So venues are trying to be creative. Um, you know, the other thing which a lot of people haven't talked about is how is this affecting the low to mid-range performers who really need venues to get visible, to try new material out, um, but really need to make a name for themselves. A lot of these smaller venues just aren't going to make it. Right. Um, you know, they don't have the backing of, you know, the – Frederick City owns the Weinberg Center and can back that financially. But a lot of smaller places are really struggling, and, you know, we don't know if they're going to make it or not. Well, it's uh, like— Coffee houses. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was just going to really going to jump on what you just said. I drove by the family meal on East Street today, and uh-huh. it looked like a sign company was—they had a, a ladder up to the, the sign where it family meal— and when I spoke to Carol not long after that, I said, you know, I wonder if they're taking the sign down because that. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you read about three days ago on the Frederick News Post, but um, Voltaggio is going to be closing Volt. Ah, no, and I did not. He, yeah, he transferred his liquor license from Volt to a new name. He's going to be apparently at the same establishment, same address, but it's going to be a different name restaurant. It may have a different theme, a different pricing structure i don't know but yeah volts is no more so yeah, hmm. i mean he owns family meal so yes, he does maybe that's that's i don't know maybe again he's having trouble as well well and he's far enough up i don't think he's part of the the blocked off street or is he i'm trying to remember uh i, I don't know i don't think he is i think it's uh well maybe maybe he is but it's um it's very difficult for for food establishments Many are doing actually fairly well. Like the Frederick Coffee Company is actually doing. Mike there is just—he's a very mm-hmm. good business person, and he's—he's he's been able to get through this and 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 do it really really well. And so he's he's not obviously doing business like used to, but doing better than most places. But there are some the ones that are kind of on the outskirts who don't get the and can't do outside seating. It must be just horrible. Yeah. Well, he's lucky he has a parking lot, so yeah. there's a lot of, you know, like Beans in the Belfry. There's a lot of places that just don't have, they, they can't do, well, I guess they could do some seats out front in the Beans, but very limited. Right. Um, it, it, very difficult for them, I'm sure. But what I was going to say was, you know, places like Open Mics, where a lot of the younger crowd and and people get a chance to, you know, get the cojones to go up and actually perform in front of people for the first time and learn their, you know, their craft and and fine-tune things, and, you know, that's very... Matter of fact, one of my best stories, you know about John Prime, right? And how he got started? I, I know I've heard it. I've forgotten. Well, it's one of my best stories in music, favorite stories in music. So John Prime was a mailman in Chicago. 
and deliver mail every day. And in the evening, would go to his room and would do some writing. And he liked writing songs in his room. Never performed outside of his room. And uh, so one night, uh, he was at, um, I think it's called the Sixth, Sixth Peg Coffee House there in Chicago. And he was had a couple too many to drink. So he was getting a little loud, a little boisterous. It was an open mic. The guy up there playing at the time was apparently not very good. And John let him know, you're not very good, <laughs> and said, you know what? He goes, John said, uh, you know what? I can do a better job. Than you. you stink. Get off the stage. And the guy performing said, well, you know what, buddy? If you think you can do better, then get up on stage and do it. And John said, okay, I will. So he got up, borrowed a guitar, and sang three songs. And the three songs were Hello in There, Angel from Montgomery, and uh, I forget what the other one is. But again, one of his one of his big hits. Yeah. And the and and he said it he said he finished and you could hear a pin drop and he thought, Oh my God, that wasn't a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> and then everybody started clapping and the manager came over and said, Hey buddy, you're pretty good. I have some openings on weekends. I want you to come in every Saturday for six weeks. And he said, Okay. No, no. What he said was, Hey, I, I got a job for you. And John said, um what? He thought he was meant washing in the dishes sure. in the back. And he said, well, he goes, no, I need you to perform on Saturday nights. So he hired him part-time basis, hired him again full-time basis. And after that, he quit being a mailman, and John Prime never looked back because of that open mic that night. Yeah. What a great story. So open mics, again, when you get back to uh, the performers, the young people, the people trying to learn, who are trying to get enough guts to get up there. I mean, we're going to go a year without these kind of open mics and venues across the country, and it's really a shame because – you know, these people are losing opportunity to get a chance and, and like the Josh Grays of the world to get a start in the music world, you know. Now, are you watching some of the online open mics and, and um, live streaming? I am. Uh, Ron, uh, uh, Rob Hinkle, who yeah. ran the, uh, runs the open mic from T-Wolf in Baltimore, uh, does one every Monday night and he live streams it and you, it's free on YouTube. So you go to YouTube. Uh, Rob's open mic. Anybody that wants to watch it, Rob's open mic. Monday night starts at seven o'clock. Usually runs for three hours, and um, usually I'd say maybe fifteen performers, maybe more in the evening. And uh, I like watching that. Sometimes I'll put it on mute. Sometimes I won't. Depends who's performing. And that's the nice thing about these things. You know, before you were just kind of stuck there until the next performer. But uh, now I can, you know, do a little work on the computer and wait till the next guy comes up and unmute it. So, uh, yeah, I'm doing some of that, um, trying to catch it wherever I can, live on, you know, any performances that people are doing and tip when I can. So you have to be creative, but they're out there if you look for them. Well, you know, we haven't really talked about your monthly article in the Sound Post, the uh, Fame newsletter. The I'm trying to remember whether you suggested that or we were looking for subjects to put into the newsletter and someone suggested, or maybe you did, how did that start? I don't recall. Well, um, you can thank Rick Hill, he, uh, as you can thank him for many things, mm -hmm. but uh, we were at our picnic. Um, don't remember that year where it was at, but anyway, we were at our annual fame picnic and I was sitting at the table with Rick, uh, eating our hot dogs or whatever. And I had recently joined Fame. This was maybe almost 10 years ago. 
and Rick said, you know, he says, I really wish we had somebody who could write an article for the newsletter about uh, history and music and the backstories and those kinds of things. And, of course, the wheels are already spinning in my head because I can't sing, I can't perform, I can't, I don't write music. So where is my contribution to fame? How am I going to help? So I thought, okay, this I can do. Um, this I have a background in, I have a passion for, I have some knowledge about, and I enjoy writing. So this is a no-brainer. So I, I talked to Rick before I left. I said, hey, I, I'd like to take you up on that offer. So um, so that's kind of how that started. And that was, um, I actually looked before I got on the phone with you tonight. It was uh, eight years ago. It was 2012 is when I wrote my first article for the newsletter. So it's, um, I've only missed maybe three months, but I'm getting getting close to 100 articles so far um, for the Fame newsletter. And that's kind of cool when you stop and think about it. Oh, it's it's phenomenal. Now, how do you come up with the subject matter? Do you sit down and say, gosh, I'd like to write about that, or, oh, there's a song I'd like to pick apart, or do you, do you well, set it up couple, so you... Go ahead. Yeah, the first couple of years was pretty easy. I just, you know, just from a lot of experience and people that I'd read about and knew... Uh, stories that I knew, those were pretty easy um, for me to, to do. After that, um, it would kind of be a little more research about what are some good stories about songs. It may be something, well, for instance, I was sitting with Rick at one of your Christmas shows at the coffee company, and I don't know how we got talking about, I wonder what the oldest continually sung folk song might be. And we started throwing different songs out there. So that got me to write um, one of my issue, one of my uh, issues uh, that I wrote about one of the articles. Um, sometimes it's timely if people pass away or the time of year. I might write something based on uh, the twelve days of Christmas. Um, I wrote an article about that uh, for Christmas kind of theme thing. Uh, once or twice I've written articles that have been recommended from other people and they never really worked for me. It was really hard for me to write because I really wasn't into the subject or the person. And um, I don't know that I did a good job doing it. And I, I kind of learned that if I don't feel I want to write about it, I probably shouldn't because I won't do a good job on it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how some of my articles come about. Um, and sometimes, you know, just recently I wrote the article two issues ago, I think, about, you know, venues opening up and what they're looking at. And, you know, this is not going to be anything that's going to happen soon um, for these larger venues. Um, so, you know, as things pop into, you know, the newspapers or maybe how I kind of write about them. Um, and I do have a couple favorites that I've written, and I think one of them has to be the Patsy Cline thing that mm -hmm. I wrote. Because um, I, I heard you mention that before when you talked to Rick. In fact, your very first podcast was Rick. You talked about the Patsy Cline thing. So for people who don't know or aren't familiar uh, I wrote an article about Patsy Cline like 70 years ago in the newsletter and the fact that she actually lived in Frederick for three and a half years. And she married Gerald Cline from Frederick, and that's how she became Patsy Cline. She was Patsy Hensley before that. And, um, you know, I did a lot of research for that because I wanted to find out where she lived, uh, where she used to live, and, you know, is the building still here? And I, and I found the actual house where she lived for three and a half years and it's still there and if anybody wants to know it's right next to the um flame that gas station liberty liberty gas station yeah yep. right there across from one of the gates at the uh, frederick fairgrounds so there's a gas station in the house right next to the gas station is a 
duplex, upper and lower duplex, well, she lived on the upper level of that duplex. So I thought at the end of it, just a passing sentence, I said, wouldn't it be great if fame did something to memorialize the fact that Patsy Klein lived in Frederick? But that kind of stuck with me. I couldn't, I couldn't let go of that thought. So about a month or two later, at one of the board meetings, I said, hey, you know, what do you guys think about, I know where she lives, what do you think about putting some kind of memorial there to honor the fact that Patsy Klein lived there? You know, everybody kind of thought it was a good idea, and I kind of championed the, the position to try to research it. Well, as you know, and anybody who works with local government knows, you're going to run into so much red tape. You know, they were like, well, you know, who's responsible for the maintenance? And, you know, is, is someone trips? Who's, you know, who's that? And, you know, all these kind of things. And who's going to construct it? And, you know, they were all, it's all legal cover your butt kind of stuff, which I understand. But it didn't help us proceed with getting a monument there. So I said, you know, finally, you know, everybody said, well, nice try, Tom. You know, it ain't going to work. I said, well, let me try one more thing. I said, let me find the lady. Let me see if I can find the lady who owns the house. It's a rental now, but let me see if I can find a lady that owns the house and see if I can talk to her about maybe putting it on the front lawn because then we don't have to worry about the city. It's on her lawn, her property. Let me just see if I can work something out. So I, I found out who owns the house, Joanne Finneyfrock. I love I love the name, Finneyfrock. Yes, it's a wonderful name. So, yeah, so I called, I called her, and she said, oh, my God, she was hysterical. Oh, my God, you would do that? That would be awesome. I said, really? She said, yes, that would be so great. She goes, I remember visiting my grandparents. They owned that house, and uh, they lived on the bottom floor, and Patsy Klein lived on the top floor, and I would visit them. And Patsy was so loud, and I was so scared as a child because she was a loud singer. And <laughs> So we worked with her, and we were able to uh, get a very nice bronze plaque that is has a picture of Patsy and a couple other pictures of Patsy on there, noting that this is where she lived, and it was donated by Fane, and it's installed on a nice granite marker donated by Lau Memorials on the front lawn of Joanne Pennyfrock's property. And we had a nice, and you know where I'm going with this, yes, so we had do. a nice unveil, <laughs> unveiling of it, and we had a photographer there and a, and a writer for the Project News Post there, and it was made the paper project paper the next day and that was great and like two days later i thought hmm i said let me just type in patsy klein memorial frederick and just see what pops up but oh my god so what popped up was the new zealand herald the london times the the you know new delhi whatever i was like are you kidding me so the the ap wire picked this up and carried it across the world and all the little, little papers across the world were picking up this article and actually had it in the newspaper. That just blew me away. I was so amazed by that because, as you know, I was not a big proponent of that in the beginning. Yeah. I kept thinking, yeah. gosh, I don't know. This is this seems like a whole lot of money, and who's going to care and, and so forth. And I, I slowly warmed up to it, and unfortunately, I couldn't be at the unveiling. I think I had a real estate no, or because um, it had to be either a Tuesday night or a, I think it was a Tuesday night because I left from there right away to go down to the coffee company because oh, you okay. were there that night. Yep. Okay. So I'm guessing it was a Tuesday night. I don't know. But the um, and when when I found out, I think you had told me or Rick, however, it was around the world. It's like, huh? <laughs> yeah. So 
Good on you, mate. I mean, that was terrific. Cause yeah, you... I'm thinking some little sheep farmer in New Zealand is, you know, eating his breakfast, open up the paper and sees this, you know, they put a Patsy Klein memorial in Frederick, Maryland. I thought, that is so cool. Well, you know, I must let people know that you spearheaded that project, and I know fame signed on to it, and it was kind of an organizational thing, but you were the, the brainchild behind that, and you did a fantastic job. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Todd. Yeah, I designed the bronze, and we did. I did put the whole thing together and, and got it together and had it installed. And, you know, I, I drive by there almost every day, and I glance over to look at it, and it just puts a smile on my face because, you know, no matter what happens to, to fame or to me or whatever, I mean, that monument's there. People see it. And, you know, it's funny, and I think you saw it the first year or two it was there. You would drive by and see like candles or flowers, yeah. or yep. it was like a little memorial that people were like, you know, they were touched, and a lot of people didn't realize it until they saw it. So it it kind of lives on, and it, it's really it makes me smile when I see it. Yeah, well, you should be proud of uh, what you did, Tom. Well, thank you, Todd. But it was a lot of fun, and not only that, and but again, also are, yeah, go ahead. These are the little things that I can do when I give back to fame. You know, whether it's a lecture that I give about music history or you know, again, because of not being a performer, you kind of have to find your niche when you're in organizations, and I kind of found my little niche. Well, I must say that of all the people involved with fame, and there's a fairly large group, um, and there's the, there's the core board, um, of course, but between Rick and you and Mr. Green, you know, starting the newsletter and putting mm-hmm. it all together. You you three are kind of like the heavyweights of fame, in my estimation. So thank you very much for you to be part of that uh, trio. Well, that's high praise coming from you because you were always the go-to guy. If we needed an open mic or someone to run sound or someone to print cards or do advertise, you know, get advertising uh, layout together, and I still use you from time to time. So you always were able to pitch in and roll up your sleeves. And that was a nice thing with the group we had. And, and to the degree we still have with fame where, you know, a lot of people um, were willing to pitch in the work to make sure it got done. And we were all rowing the boat in the same direction. So that was a lot of fun. Well, for those people listening who are not as familiar with fame, Frederick Acoustic Music Enterprise, you can go to the website, frederickacoustic.org, and you can pick up past issues and see some of Tom's articles of the sound post you can also see photos from open mics and things like that and you can also i think download a application to be a member if you'd like it is a fun organization to be a part of and uh, maybe and everyone is welcome to go to the board meetings well once we get back to normal life i guess yeah. it's probably the best yeah. way to look at it but and i've had a wonderful time chatting with you i mean i've known you quite well for the past eight or so years but i've learned so much about you in the last hour and 11 minutes and eight seconds how about that <laughs> <laughs> well that is stunning and uh, i really appreciate it i mean you've always been one of my heroes in the local acoustic music scene uh, you do so much. Um, people don't know a lot of the back work that you do for things. Um, Festival of the Arts and just, you know, a lot of time that you put into it. Of course, Carol knows. Um, <laughs> but, you know, a lot a lot of people don't know that, you know, you do put a lot of time into it. And it is appreciated. I appreciate it. And many people do so. And the podcast is one example. I mean, this is a lot of effort and time you put in. People can learn and listen. And, again, another thing that you've done for Frederick County and um, we all appreciate it, and we all thank you, Todd. Well, don't tell anybody, but it's a whole lot of fun. <laughs> well, I know. I'm on the other end, too, so I wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. So yeah. we're having a good time. Just don't tell anybody. Huh? 
All right. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining me. I hope you have a good rest of your evening. And I hope, fingers crossed, that we can get some positive change to be able to have indoor music sometime in the near future. uh, Boy, we're all looking forward to it. I I can't wait to see you get up there again with your blue guitar and start strumming. Okay. Well, Tom, again, thanks so much, and we'll talk to you another time. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you very much, Ted. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. Well, that was Tom Kolhep. He's the Frederick folklorist. He's also, as you heard, he's a wonderful uh, man as far as putting shows together, or can't do it right now due to COVID, but uh, a whole lot of fun. And I want to thank him for being on the show. We're going to leave the show now with some more bumper music. And this bumper music, both the one in the beginning and this one, is produced, written, and performed by a gentleman by the name of Jason Shaw. And he has a royalty-free, free downloads of music in all different categories. Acid jazz, blues, country, folk, bluegrass, electronic, ethnic, gospel, folk, you name it. He does ask that maybe you could donate, which I have done because I've downloaded two songs, and we're going to listen to one now. It doesn't really have a name, but here we go. The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland, and occasionally on location. All of the music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist, or in this case, it's by permission, because it's royalty-free, by Jason Shaw and his website. If you're curious about downloading some music, maybe you have a podcast and you'd like some bumper music, you can go to his website. It's Audionautics. That's A-U-D-I-O-N-A-U-T-I-X.com. Audionautics.com. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, which is wispymopmusic.podbean.com. And Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. So wispymopmusic.podbean.com. Or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. I again want to thank Tom Colehip for joining me this evening. I did produce this show this evening. That was the only time he and I could get together. And I hope you enjoy it and listen to more shows. Thanks again. <laughs>